this this theme this morning will be about love. And what I've done is I've <clears throat> I've tried to juggle three or four things that I'm doing at once. Uh, the study of Philippians, uh, something that God was trying to teach me from a month ago. Some reading I've been doing, I've been excited about. And as we get into this Valentine's Day, I thought this would be a perfect time. Two weeks ago, I was going to teach on some of this, and I thought, no, this isn't the right time, so I waited for this. But there's some really fun things in this uh, message today, and I'm I'm eager to share it with you. So thanks for coming, and for those of online, you can uh, listen and take notes. But I've titled this... uh, uh, Again, I wrestle with titles, but it's the title I want to get to at the end of the sermon, but not the beginning. So what I want to do is I want to give you some preliminary thoughts about love according to the scriptures. And then we'll go into that question that if this is so good, why is it that so few of us really love well? And that's the theme, that, the, theme the title is What Blocks Love? And therefore we're going to do a dive into the deep end and, and uh, look at some things that, that I think you'll find one interesting and surprising. I, I did. And so I hope you walk away with this thought, main thought is that God is doing a work in you to make you a better lover of God and of people. And that's what he's after. So he's after a new kind of humanity. And so one of the things I... <clears throat> I bought this book about six... No, about a year ago now, and I finally got around to reading it. It's called The Amorous Heart. And uh, it's written by Marilyn Yalom, who is a professor at Stanford. She's a researcher, and she has an interesting theme. Uh, she was wondering about the symbol of the heart. Where did that come from? And how do we get the idea that this romantic view that we have of, of, uh, of, of the heart representing a love... She went back and she did some study and some research, and so she went clear back to Egypt. And in Egypt, they had the idea that the heart was somehow related to life and, of course, being the central organ, but they also said that heart was the soul, that when your heart stopped, your soul stopped. And so going way back to Egypt, and she followed that through the Greek and Roman era, which we'll touch a little bit, but she also went into the uh, Arab world, the Hebrew world, and then she followed it into Europe and across to the commercialized day that we celebrate today. By the way, you don't know this, I made a huge mistake on Valentine's Day one time in Japan. I gave chocolates to a friend of mine, um, good, good friend of mine, um, to his wife because we were Americans and we wanted to celebrate little things. And, and, and the, my friend was married to a Japanese woman and she was so embarrassed. Like, oh, oh what do I do with these? Uh, you're not, uh. And I thought, oh, did I do something wrong culturally? Well, it's not wrong to give gifts, but it was wrong to give her chocolates on Valentine's Day. And I didn't know this, but men don't give chocolates on Valentine's Day in Japan. Women give men chocolates on Valentine's Day. So I should have been receiving the chocolates instead of giving the chocolates. She said, oh, I've been embarrassed, it's so wrong. And the reason why is because at White Day, a couple months later, is when the men give them 
uh, women chocolates. And so there's two days so the chocolatiers can make more money. So just, that's a freebie. But anyway, this idea of romance, is, besides it being commercialized, the idea that there's a, an image about romance and a lot of mixed messages about attractions and fatal attractions and uh, corrupted attractions. But you come into this idea that uh, love at this day is represented by this little guy named Cupid. Now you've seen this guy around, uh, flying around a little chubby cherub, and his, uh, his name means desire or passion. Now his Latin name is Cupido, that's his Roman name. Do you know what his Greek name is? I gave it there, it's Eros. And Eros, <clears throat> from the word, uh, from erotica, it means sensual, a physical, and so when you talk about romance and you talk about love, most people will go in the Greek world to this idea. And so I say this as a preface for you to understand that the Greeks and the Egyptians and everybody back then 2,000 years ago and beyond were talking about the same thing of love. Now, did you know that there are eight types of love? There are eight, not just one, Eros. Eros is one of them. <clears throat> and so to play with words as I do, here you have the, Whit, uh, the Whitman sampler, chocolate, but there's the samples and that's my acronym so that you can remember all eight words. And so here are your eight types of love. You have S is the storge, and storge means love for your family. You really are committed to your family to honor them and cherish them, mom and dad, it'll go well with you. Storge love is a familial love. Agape is the unconditional love. I will love you no matter what you do. It's not based on your performance. It's an unconditional, we call it grace. We know that because of Christ loving us first. We don't love him and then he loves us. It's not conditioned upon your response. It's the free gift of grace. Mania. Mania love is a love that becomes obsessed. It's an obsessive kind of love that says I need to control or I need to get it again, but there's a, 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 almost an addiction to this, and so you go crazy, because love can make you crazy. Uh, phileo, philia, it's a, it's a love for your brother, where we get the word Philadelphia, you know, phileo. It's a brotherly love again. And here's a fun one, ludos. Ludos is the love of games. <clears throat> it's the love of, of, of excitement, of fun, of, of happiness, of joy, of winning in a game. But it includes a little bit of this playfulness when it comes to relationships that would include flirtation. But it's a, it's a, it's a playful, it's a joyful, fun thing, supposedly. And then, then you have the eros. And eros, again, is this physical love that really brings two people together in intimacy, it's a great word. Uh, it's been corrupted, but it's a great word that God wants us to have these desires. And the last one is splanchnon. And it's a, it's a word that means kidney or liver or inner, innermost part. And that's where you would say, you shall love the Lord your God with all your innards. 
And so from within, it means something inside is coming out of you. And so that's where the soul, the desires of the heart, says I want to give myself and all that I am from deep within. Uh, those are the eight types of love. And so the images that you have, when Paul, when Paul went into Philippi in Greece, they already had this discussion. They already were talking about love in a way that Paul's going to introduce to us that, uh, <clears throat> that they, they were thinkers back there in Greece. Even the, the people who were common folks, they would hear these discussions and get involved. And Plato, as you know, from the last couple of weeks, I've been talking about the idea that uh, we're, we're not talking about something kind of marginal. or It's very important because it's about how you live your life. And so two weeks ago, we talked about Chuck Colson and, and uh, Francis for how then shall we live? And we're talking about worldviews and we're talking about uh, how, how people see and think and feel and then do live out as they walk in the world. Well, I've taken the liberty to change Plato's phrase. Instead of asking the question, how shall we live? I ask, how should a man love? How, 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 how does this love thing work? And so you know, and, and, and there's mixed messages for love. And you tried this, and, and you got a little bit of love, and it didn't get enough. Or Love is it, it's a hard to get your hands around it, because it's not just finding love. It's keeping love. And of course, the television and the media really wants to jump all over this. If you've been watching The Bachelorette, I won't have you raise your hands. <clears throat> but the idea that, that you can find perfect love if you just spend enough time fishing through all these men, and then once you find the perfect love, ah, you put on that ring, and, and they did. In this case, Claire Crowley, have you heard that six months after they were married, they were engaged, they decided during the... The last season, they've uh, to go their separate ways. So it's not a guarantee, as you know, because there's a lot of things that will come in and destroy and attack and undermine, sabotage, in other words, that, that love can be corrupted. And love can be in competition with different things. And so the, the question is, how, how, how do you go about this? Because if this is the greatest commandment, to ignore this would be the greatest detriment because you were built to be lovers. You were built to be loved. And that's one of the themes that Paul, when he goes into Philippi, he's addressing in this book in Philippians. He doesn't call it love, but he could. But I'm calling the theme, the main theme of Philippians, joy. And so we're going to look at this because Philippians is all about the answering of that question. It's how a life that desires and loves God is to be lived in joyful relationships. And that joy in a fallen world is rare, very rare, because it has to do with a theme called grace, a theme called unconditional agape love. And we learned this in Kairos 
we learned that you listen, listen, love, love. It's all about agape love for us as we minister to the guys in prison who really need someone to say, you won't be thrown away in heaven. You won't be locked away because if you receive Christ, the love of Christ is there for you to forgive your sins. Now, notice with me, as you go through the book of Philippians, as I keep meditating and camping on this book and I go back and, and the Lord just will send a thought every, every so often as you meditate. If you are quickly going through the scriptures, you won't get much out of it. You'll get something, if you're like most people, you read it and then you forget it. You read it 15 minutes later, you go, oh, that was a good time, 15 minutes, and then you have to go shopping for groceries and you have an etch-a-sketch moment where all those things just kind of go away. But if you read carefully and over, over a period of time, your brain marinates <laughs> or the Holy Spirit will cultivate these thoughts. And one of the thoughts that I saw as, as I was going through Philippians, it's interesting in this book because as a book, you'll find that Paul doesn't focus on the Old Testament a whole lot here. It's in there, but not so much because it's a Gentile culture. It's not Jewish at all. So he's introducing something that's they won't have been they wouldn't have been anchored in the Jewish history. So it's not about it's not about the Old Testament. It's not about the church so much. Paul doesn't talk about Jerusalem. He doesn't talk about his own testimony in terms of the conversion on the Damascus Road. He talks about his past a little, but that's not the focus. And in this book, Paul doesn't talk about the Torah. He doesn't talk about circumcision. He doesn't talk about convert. He's, he's beyond that, but he doesn't talk. The, the focus isn't forgiveness and the cross, uh, uh, discipleship, missions, is. Uh, he didn't talk about the end times. There's one focus for Paul in this book. And the focus is going to be on learning how Christ is at work in you and in our hearts to really create a sense of his presence and a sense of his joy. And all the way through the book, we're going to look at various facets of how Paul is trying to say to the Philippians, you can have new life in Christ, and that love and that life is going to be wrapped up in a personal relationship with Christ. And therefore, it's how well you know him, how well you know the love of God. And therefore, Paul would pray, I just pray for you guys, you would be filled with the fullness that the love of God would be so easily, readily flowing out of your heart and off of your lips that you would be a testimony to people because you love God. We are people to love God. We shouldn't be ashamed of that, and yet people will say, we don't want to talk about that because people are uncomfortable or they'd be offended. There's something so magically wonderful because we'll get into this. And so Paul, Paul is saying, uh, he's, he's shifted in his life because something happened in Paul that would change his spirit. And so Paul, the, the, the rigorous, studious, intellectual Paul, became a kingdom lover, and you'll see this in the book. You'll see this in all of the books. So Paul would write these words, for the love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ propels us, compels us, moves us. And so what's going on inside Paul is a heart that's aflame 
with the love of Christ. His love compels us. And he has something there because we have been convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he who died for all, Jesus, that they who live, us, should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, what Paul had and what you have that the Greeks didn't have was the Holy Spirit. The Romans didn't have the Holy Spirit. The Egyptians didn't have the Holy Spirit. The Arabs didn't have, nobody had the Holy Spirit except here comes Pentecost and the church and the disciples move out in the power of love because the Holy Spirit poured out the love in their hearts. And therefore, you come to this part where Paul understands love in a different way than the world does, than the Gentiles do. And this is the issue. Paul said in Galatians, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the love of the flesh, the desires of the flesh. Now read the word desire in there and read the word love in there and you're right in the the heart of the biblical meaning of love because you are built to be creatures of desire. And we're gonna look at this. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit. But notice the spirit is not gonna be passive. The spirit sets his desires against the flesh. And the problem in our world is you try to satisfy your desires of your spirit with fleshly desires, you're always gonna be empty. You're always gonna be disappointed. That's why the physical relationships, that's why relationships based on the physical usually put her out because it's the spirit that's wanting to be met, to be connected with in your heart that you are loved spiritually, not just physically, not to be used for pleasure, but to be embraced for a long period of time. And therefore, the idea that Paul is saying that if you walk in the Spirit, you're gonna find the joy, a different kind of joy, because the Spirit of God will meet you in your innermost being and set your heart free to love. That's a wonderful thing. So when Paul gets into the book of Philippians, he's always talking about joy and rejoicing. And, uh, but you've heard this phrase, we have it in our hymnals, the joy of the Lord is our strength. You've heard that. Do you know where that's found? It's in the Old Testament. It's an interesting little study because in Nehemiah, when, when Israel had failed completely and were carried away in their sin and captivity, Nehemiah and Ezra brought them back to rebuild Jerusalem, the temple in Jerusalem. But he said to them, Nehemiah 8.10, go and eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so he, he goes back to understand this, that the priest Ezra and the teacher of the law, they were in telling the people, this is the day, this day is holy to the Lord. Don't mourn. Don't weep. Don't be sad. And they had reason to be sad because they failed to be faithful. They weren't, they weren't loving God and they gave themselves over to sin, they had been uh, destroyed by the enemy. 
And therefore, they were not worthy, they thought, because why would God love me? And all those people had been weeping as they heard Ezra say, this is the Lord, and they felt guilty. And so often Christians struggle with a false sense of guilt, depression, or being, being stuck in a place where they can't be forgiven. And because there's a block in their heart that says, I can forgive other people, but I can't forgive myself. Or I, I know God will forgive them, but I just have, a, when I come to my own sin, I, so we, we shut down our heart. We don't deal with the things that really destroy us. But these are the words that Nehemiah says, go and enjoy choice food. I, I want you to enjoy. I've given you some delight. And they're, <sighs> but he, Nehemiah says, you understand that the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, why would the children of Israel find joy in the Lord when they've sinned against God? It's called grace. Because God moves uh, towards his people when those people weren't moving towards him. And that's what love is. If I move towards you with your best interest in mind, at my expense, that's called love. But if I move towards you with my interest in mind, at your expense, that's called sin. But God's always going to be moving out of grace. Always going to be moving to heal. Always going to be moving to comfort. Always going to be moving to call back. And what was the joy? The joy is that you've come back. The shepherd has you. And so Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior saves. He will take great delight in you. Isn't that awesome? In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. Why is God so happy? Because you're, you have come back. It's the reconnection. It's the, it's the re, uh, reconciliation. It's, you're no longer away. And when you're with Christ, and it's always this way with Christ, you will make known to me the path of life. Sitting at the feet of Christ, walking with the Spirit, the desires that he has. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, David said. But in your right hand, there are pleasures forever. So with Christ meeting your deepest needs and those desires, there's a freedom and a fullness that leads you out of this kind of um, self-preoccupied, I'm something's wrong with me. And that's the thing that the Spirit of God will do. Now, let me share a couple other things that's interesting. Why does the heart always have this arrow through it, Valentine's Day? You know why? Well, Cupid has a, always has that bow. And did you know Cupid had two kind of arrows? One was sharp, a golden arrow, that would pierce through the heart and create that desire for romance and love and awe. And the other heart was made out of lead. And it was a blunt end, and you got hit by that. It hurt. And so some people, they thought Cupid was not only a nice, cutesy little thing, he was a monster, because if he were afflicted by this mania of love, you would go crazy, because it would preoccupy all your time. But love, there are two arrows. Now, I wanted to pick this up, because it's interesting, as you'll hear, that C.S. Lewis picked this up later, and he called 
the idea that love is a penetrating shaft, a spear of desire. I thought that's interesting. This this idea that there's a a shaft moving through, like light in the darkness. Joy is like that shaft of hope, piercing our darkness with the joy of forgiveness. And the hope of saying, I have been forgiven, I have been restored, I've been welcomed back. The idea that there's something piercing into your heart, this is what music does. So music goes uh, into your heart, it lifts your spirit, but it pierces inside, and therefore these are what they call shafts of joy. Now these shafts of joy are experiential. And understand that when God sends a desire and you have an interest or pleasure that you feel like you've been moved, touched, or aroused, or interested, God is sending you pleasures and desires like a shaft of joy that pierces your heart that says this is great because that's the Holy Spirit touching you making you aware of the fact that there's a hunger inside of you that's calling you and making you aware of the fact that goodness has touched your life. And as a result, uh, there are certain things that you, you do enjoy, certain desires, casual desires that you think, I like this. And you may not understand this. And this I don't want to get weird on you, but... Uh, let me help you understand that these little shafts of joy are gifts given in everyday life. If you're walking with Christ, you'll see ordinary desires like, like getting your office drawer organized, getting your closet organized, doing your laundry and folding your laundry, getting your toolbox organized. There are things like when you look at your yard, when you work in your yard, and after working the yard so long, you go, ah, that's good. Even, even cleaning out the driveway and snowing, you want to get that snow just right. When things are in order and things are right and you feel good about doing the laundry and the laundry's all put away and, and the kitchen's done and, and, and doing the little things that just bring you a sense of, ah, that's a little touch that you love things being right. You love order. You love peacefulness. You like things that work. I don't know why my garage door only goes halfway up. And I can't back the car out. So, But when things don't work, you think, mm-hmm. but when they do work, you go, I don't, you just kind of take it for granted. All these little things that you go through, you take a shower, you feel good, a night with friends, a warm embrace, God is sending you every day hundreds of little joys. And if you don't recognize the goodness of God, you'll miss the Spirit really touching your heart to love, 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 love. All these are gifts that God gives to us. Now, here's a fun thing. I've mentioned once before this German word, sensucht, S-E-H-N-S-U-C-T. And this is what what Paul is talking about here in Philippians, but this does not translate into English very well at all. 
And so the word is that there's a craving inside. There's a longing, a yearning, a desiring that I want something. I was built for more. And what I want, I don't have. And therefore, in the human heart, there is a hole reserved for God alone that no material thing can fill. No sexual, sensual experience could fill. No relationship on earth can fill. It's a hole in the heart that God's reserved for himself. And this word sensucht is the German word. Saudade is the Portuguese word. Intensely missing. There's something in my life I just... And you can't put your finger on it. But there's something bubbling up, welling up, saying, huh, I want, there's something. And you don't know what it is. <clears throat> the Galician part of Spain, the Morina, talks about all things being unfinished. And you want to finish things. There's a drive there. There's a motivation. It's a desire to say, I, I want to bring things to perfection. The Russian word Tosca, again, the search for happiness, Tzitza, and then in Japan, it's this wabi-sabi. And what that means is, I don't have it put together. I know that there's something that I need to work on. There's always things I need to work on. But in my imperfection, there's still a desire for perfection. All of those things are bound up in this word for longing and desire. And it's a hard word to get a hold of. But you'll know... um, you know that when you move out of desire, that you're looking for things. As Tolkien said, not all who wander are lost. They're looking for that fulfillment in your heart. And therefore, this desire, this deep desire that's really moving you is the thing that moves you into relationships. It's the longing for what is not present. It's an awakening of the fact that I'm aware that this life isn't all there is. There's more. There's more. Even after death, there's more. I want more. I, there's something I want. I don't even know what I want. And when I get what I want, it's not what I want. Because the flesh doesn't deal with the spirit. So this object of long, longing is also part of this thing of grieving. Because if you've lost something, that you've tasted it and you want it again, with the passing of a loved one, you know you're not going to get that. But there's that ache. Oh, I want to be reunited. I want to see my family again. I want to go back home. And so you have, you have songs like, Country Road, Take Me Home. Dorothy, Wizard of Oz, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. There's, a, there's somewhere I belong. Somewhere it's home. And the idea that there's a place for you and you've you got to find your place and, and where you fit in, all these things are what Paul says, you don't understand the place you belong is in the very arms of God, in the very presence of the Lord. And so when he says, I just pray <clears throat> that God would give to you, grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, in the heart, so that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love, and that's what Paul wants for us, that we are rooted and grounded in such a love of God that we're rooted, we become established and stable, 
that our security is really anchored in the very Lord who's touching that heart's desire to be loved. And therefore, as the uh, prayer continues, that you would comprehend with all those saints to understand what the breadth, the length, the height, the depth, and know the love of Christ, which surpasses, which fulfills, overflows in abundance, because you have been a man or woman filled up with the fullness of God's love. Now that's what Paul is bringing to the Philippians, who says, well, I've got these eight types of love over here, and none of them really fulfill because they're always conditioned upon some experience. And that's why in the, in the beginning, when Paul introduces this concept, you have people in the early church who picked this up. St. Augustine then is famous for this phrase that our hearts are restless. Restless. Agitated. Some, uh, and so you're always looking, I need to, but, but our restlessness doesn't go away until they find rest in you. Now that idea, follow me, that you can be a person who rests in the love of God or be restless outside the love of God and those who find the rest, those saints who know the depth, the height, there are a number of them, and they begin to write devotionals. Now, from the from Saint uh, Saint Augustine in 350, they knew that to pursue God would be to love God, and then to do what God would say is, if you love me, you love your neighbor. And so, the idea that you'd be not only relationally connected, but you'd be relationally connected horizontally and having a new humanity. And therefore, as the church grew through the Middle Ages, you had certain things like monasteries and communities where people would want to seek God and then then they would be separate from the world and they would go to a nunnery or a monastery and they would be with a group of people who were searching God and they would purposely, intentionally take this thing very seriously and they would find fulfillment in their prayer life or contemplation. But there were communities. That's what the church is to be. You and I in community, walking together by the Spirit, learning and enjoying the love of God as you reflect that to me and and I reflect that to you as we do that together. All that's the community of the Spirit. St. Francis, you've heard of St. Francis of Assisi. He would talk about this heart a lot. Talk about the love of God. He wasn't so much a scholar, intellectual like some of the others, but he was experiential and he enjoyed all these little shafts of joys from the animals to the gardens to the cooking to prayer. He understood how to walk with God. Now, there are other people back there. This comes out in 1256. There's a woman that you probably have never heard of. I'd never heard of, so I th- didn't th- don't be surprised. Gertrude, as a girl, five years old, went into one of these nunneries. And she lived in the... In the uh, monastery for the whole time. And she would write about the love of Christ with such passion that you would think it would be a French romance novel. She was so in love with Christ. And that grew to be, again, remember there were no 
Protestants and Baptists back there at this time. They're mainly the Catholic Church that for a hundred years, this idea of just going to church started to have this emphasis on the heart, and it was through Gertrude that this idea of the heart relationship with Christ, and here's your symbol of your heart coming into play, that this most sacred heart, this wounded heart, you know, Jesus had five wounds, one hand, two hand, both feet, and then the spear through the side. How far up did that spear go? Right into the heart. And so you have this idea of the most sacred, wounded heart. Jesus was wounded for you, became part of the sacred heart theme, which you know because of St. Anselm was one who would talk a whole lot about seeking to understand the heart of God. And this heart of God, the love of God, became a, a, a real romance, a, a devotion to Christ. And Saint, have you heard of that name, Saint Anselm? Sure. Saints that understood the depth, height, breadth, width. There are all these saints who, who began to write devotionals and the devotional life took off between the medieval church in a way that never happened before. Uh, it happened some in, in, in Paul, and, but oh, through the years, you had St. John of the Cross. And so these individuals are there as examples to you and to me. You may have heard of the guy who wrote My Utmost for His Highest, Oswald Chambers, who said the great word of Jesus to his disciples is abandon. You can lose yourself in Jesus and be fulfilled. When God has brought us into that relationship of disciples, we have to venture on his word, trust entirely on him. And watch that when he brings us into the venture, we go, we, we're following Christ. This, he's, not, he's unstoppable. Sounds like Paul. Other people, I don't know if you know these people, but they've written devotionals. And I don't know if you have a favorite author that stirs you to follow Christ more. Andrew Murray. Oh, gosh, so many books of his are about getting close to Christ. Christ in the school of prayer. Abiding life in Christ. A, a number of people. You want to imitate Christ. Thomas Kempis. Now, this is 1300, 1380. This is still... The, there were men in the Catholic Church who really loved God, walked with God, and wanted to do before the 1500s and things got different. You've also heard 1685, George Handel fell in love with Christ. He loved to be in Scripture. And when he wrote Handel's Messiah, there was a rapturous, a rapturous season where he was, again, caught up in the love of God. These men, Jonathan Edwards, uh, who would talk about religious affections, book this thick, they love God. It wasn't about psychodynamics and getting self-improvement and being successful. It was about the love of the Lord. William Law, a serious call to devout and holy life. He is therefore a devout man who lives no longer to his own will or the way and the spirit of the world but to the sole will of God. These people were sold out for Christ. George MacDonald. Anybody know about George MacDonald? One of my favorite authors. He said he was more fascinated with God's triumphant love. I believe that no man is ever condemned for any sin except one. 
that he will not leave his sins and come out of them and be the child of him who is the father. It was George MacDonald's love for Christ that influenced this man, C.S. Lewis. MacDonald was the one that persuaded the agnostic Lewis to become a Christian. But there are others, John Owens, uh, A.W. Tozer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Billy Graham. And that's why I want to say that here at Christ, here at Chesterton Baptist, putting Christ first, that we want to be a Christ-centered church, means this, and here's where the problem of the heart comes in. It's there's a certain attitude that you and I need to have about desires. And this attitude, this attitude will either free you or block you from understanding the love of God. Let me quickly go through this. To be fully human as a man, as a woman, to be fully human, alive with desire, alive with passion, alive and responsive to all these desires that come at us because God's sending these shafts of joy and pleasure, you're being called out of yourself and into the very presence of the Lord working in your life. Whether people see it or not isn't the issue, but the key lesson of the Spirit is delighting in the giver rather than the gifts and then moving back to the giver. Can you imagine a couple in love, the man goes and says, here's a box of chocolates, and here's some roses, and the woman turns her back on the love and says, oh, I got some chocolates and roses, these are great. And so she starts enjoying the gift, but she forgets her lover. That's what we're saying, that if you forget, if the delight is in the gift, and you don't understand, it's a sense shaft to say, it's about me. And there's more. And so we limit our understanding of love by what we get, rather than the relationship of being involved with one who is giving. To enjoy people and things without finding security or focusing on those things that consume us without a demanding spirit. I want more chocolate. You better make me happy. And a lot of marriages are built on this premise, I married you to make me happy, so get busy and do it. And if you don't, I'll find somebody else who does. If I can't find somebody, I have an affair. I'll find some other source to make me happy because your job is to make me happy. And that's such an inward focus, the destruction. But I've said before, if God isn't meeting your deepest needs, then meeting your deepest needs becomes your God. And you turn inward. And what happens is, once you get those pleasures met, you destroy your ability to love. Once you turn inward, you've already violated love because love does not seek its own. And therefore, it becomes an idol. I was in Mexico trying to teach my friend Oscar about love of God, and he, it was a tricky thing because as I was talking about the love of God, I found out, I, I didn't understand it at first because we were using the same language, love of God, God is love, love and love and God. And, but what I was saying that God is love, and Oscar was saying love is my God. And he was in love with love, 
looks like love, but it's not love, same word of love, but he was in love with the search of love, but he wasn't in love with God himself. And therefore, that was a tricky discussion. But if God is meeting your deepest needs and there is no other idol in your life, you realize that Christ doesn't want any competition. Not in the sense that he's gonna lose, but in the sense it's for our benefit. Because he says to Peter, and he says to others all the way through the scriptures, um, he who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. If you put anything above Christ, you're going to lose your love for Christ. And therefore, he's number one, and he's the only way you're gonna protect your ability to be free to love other people. He said to Peter at the beach, Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter, do you love me more than these? Peter, do you love me more than these? Because if you're in the ministry, if you're helping people, don't let the ministry excite you and he said to the disciples, we saw Satan fall. It was great. He says, don't, don't worry about that. Just rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. But you've got to have Christ at the center. So what happens is when Christ isn't at the center, your love is blocked. Your love is limited. Your love is redirected towards a focus on the gifts and the blessings and these things. And you'll miss the very love and the shafts of the spirit that come our way. That's why John would write, do not love the world or the things in the world. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, they will block you from loving God the Father. Therefore, if you get caught up in things in the pleasures, in the delight, even in the gifts, you'll miss the love of Christ. And that's what Satan wants to do. Remember he said to Jesus, I'll give you all these things if you worship me. Well, now there are some of us who would love to have this in their driveway, a Lamborghini. But the key to happiness is not the key to a Lamborghini because the Lamborghinis, just gone. you can wreck it. There's lots of things you can do with a Lamborghini. But you need to understand that people are made to be loved. Things are made to be used. When you start loving things, you start using people. When you start loving power, you start using people. When you start loving any position, any success, what you have is your hands filled with something and you're stuck with a blocked heart and if the right attitude towards those things, well, which we'll look at and we get into Philippians, if your heart is, if your hands are filled with this, you have to get rid of that to get more. But the right attitude towards those shafts of joys is to receive all the shafts with thanksgiving. Thank you. And turn back to God and say, thank you. I acknowledge that you just sent me a good gift. I acknowledge that there's a desire that you're touching. I know, I know that the Holy Spirit is working inside me and I want to run to you. And that's why this reception, when you, if you're sensitive, you say thank you, thank you, thank you. It results in joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength and it ends up in praise and worship. And then comes the second part. You have to let go. You have to renounce it. Because if you don't renounce it, that becomes the block because now your focus is on I got what I want but you forget all of this 
And when materialism takes over, the love of God goes cold. So, therefore, you get into, you get into this book of Philippians. How shall we love? You follow Christ. You put Christ first. But here's Paul's point. You'll love different than the eight loves of the Greeks. You'll love differently with a love that comes from above. And that love means you can love Christ with the same love that he has for you because of the Holy Spirit. This is the agape love. It's a foreign language. It's from above. It's not natural. It's supernatural. And just to know as we close, his love is so much better than ours. And therefore, what we need to do is simply turn to Christ and put him first. And doing that is what Philippians is going to help us do. So as you get into this thing, recognize that you are a creature of desire. You're supposed to have desires. There's lots of desires. But like somebody snuck into my office and put this little Heath bar on, pinned it on my bulletin board because they know I like Heath bars. I don't know who it was. It wasn't a secret Santa because it's Valentine's Day. It wasn't Sandy. But I... this Heath bar is now a, member, a memory for me because it's not the Heath bar that I'm interested in, but somebody else was thinking about me to give a little gift, and therefore I'm turning away from the Heath bar to say, Lord, you just sent me this little thing. It's a Heath bar, such a little thing. But it came from you because you put it in the heart of the person that sent it to me. And that's what the focus is. Gifts lead you to the giver. And God will send you these shafts of joys and pleasure to make you know you are so loved with a love that you didn't earn and never lose. Isn't that great? Well, wait till we get into Philippians. So let me close the service here. And we won't sing our last song because we're running late. But uh, I just want you to enjoy this. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you always surprise us with joy. Thank you that you're more than we could imagine. Just give us that sense of your spirit that we are open, that when you, sh- when you pierce our hearts with the good things, that we don't make those things under our control, but we turn back to you. Again, Father, we want this day to be a day of rest where our hearts could rest in your love and make this a special day for all of us. Pierce our hearts. And may your spirit be filling us with your love that we would give you the praise and worship for all of this. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.